Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Today, I'm so excited to speak with Jessica Hindi, a new friend. She is a powerhouse of a woman. Many people know her name from Broadway, where she played Grizabella in Cats one of your favorite shows and one of my favorite characters. Such a talented woman. But she also is about to launch a one-woman show about her own story. She shares it here with me today, and it is poignant, it is relevant, and I am so thrilled to have her share this with you. Welcome to Friday with Friends. I have a new friend, Jessica Hendy, with me today. Jessica is a Broadway star, and I can't wait just to talk about all the things. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so I have to launch right into, I was telling you about this, like we've got to talk about the fact you were in one of my all-time favorite musicals and all-time favorite character. So can you talk about the journey of being in Cats? How long were you in it? How long were you, Grizabella? I mean, this is just, what a beautiful role. Yeah, it's actually, the more I play the role, the more I actually love the role. I made my Broadway debut playing Grizabella in, I think it was 1999 when the show was um, at the Winter Garden Theater, the first production of Cats. And previous to that, I had done a national tour for a year. And then when I was done with the tour, then they bumped me up to Broadway. So, you know, Memory was the first song I ever learned how to play on the piano when I was probably like nine. So I never would have thought that I would actually get to make my Broadway debut singing Memory, one of the most iconic musical theater songs ever. I have the chills. I have the chills singing about it. It is, and it's not an easy song. I mean, for, I'm sure for a talented person like you, but it's not. Yeah. (laughs) It's not. And, you know, I was, I was young then when I played Grizabella the first time, you know, I was in my twenties and then, you know, years and years and years later, when they do the revival, I auditioned and I was put back into the show. So I have the distinct honor to be the only person on the planet that has played the role Grizabella on the both original um, production of Cats and the revival. I haven't done it in London, but um, maybe that... Every time I say, okay, I'm done with Cats, then another production comes along. (laughs) So how many years combined was that of being 
in that show? Combined, it was like only about three years, three or four years. You know, some people stay with shows for years and years and years. And I actually, when I was on the tour, I was doing someone's maternity leave. So it was a very short stint. And then I was in the show on Broadway at the Winter Garden right before it closed. And then the revival did not last very long. So it was just like short and sweet, but perfect amount of times. And each time I play the role, I've grown, you know, age-wise and, you know, maturity level. So like I've been able to like sort of evolve into Grizabella even in a more deeper sense each time I get to do it. And that's been really fun and really just great to like sort of peel back another layer of that onion in that character, you know? Oh, yeah. So for those of us who have never had this experience, how long does it take to get makeup and all that for this role? Because these are... The, the, the makeup alone is such a powerful, powerful part of Cats. It sure is. And when I first started doing Cats, when I did the national tour, I joined the tour and I met with the makeup designer in the makeup room. And he, he did half of my cat face on half of my face. He's like, okay, now you do the other half. And I was like, what? <laughs> I just assumed that you know someone would do my makeup every night. No, we had to learn how to do our makeup. So if the show was 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock curtain, I would most definitely get there at the latest by 6.30, usually by 6. Because it is a meticulous... And it's also part of the show prep, putting on that makeup, because it is almost like a meditation. You have to be really meticulous. And each cat has its own characteristics of how their makeup is done. Grizabella has tears and it's just like she has, she's a cat, but she's also very weathered and um, one of the more human looking cats of all the characters. So yeah, it takes a while and the wigs and the costumes, like it's not something where you come in at half hour at 7.30 and then you're ready to go at eight at all. Right. <laughs> on day. So as a actress, singer, performer, what, what is the hardest thing? when not just like when you have a show, but just throughout your career, what has been the most challenging aspect? That's a, such a great question. I think the most challenging aspect is having a strong belief in who I am. Because in this business, you have to get used to a lot of rejection. And it's really a disservice if you take it personally. So you have to like learn at a very young age to separate that out because really you're not being rejected personally. The people that are casting and booking shows and movies, they're putting a puzzle together and it's not, they're making sure all of the pieces fit. It's not just about you, but it seems like it is when you get that rejection. So having a strong belief in myself and knowing that this is what I'm meant to do has been the hardest part because I've been faced with so much rejection. You know, for every show I've gotten, there have been a hundred shows I did not get, you know. But just that perseverance and the the sort of like keep going no matter what. That is a challenge. It is challenging. I'm I'm married to a... He's a professional actor by training. He hasn't been doing it for a while, but for 10 years. And when we met, he was doing it. And he went into auditions 
and he's he came out and and this was like for a pilot series in in LA and he said oh yeah they told me i was you know they're looking for somebody taller and more handsome and i was like what they actually said that to you they're like yeah i mean that they have and he was so and he by the way is very handsome he just has a different look of what their version was they wanted more kind of anglo-saxon you know white male type thing and but i remember being so angry for him and he said no they have they have an idea and you, you that's like you said you have to kind of realize that it's not a personal thing but i imagine that still is challenging it is i mean you know i'm in my 40s so i get that now but when i was in my 20s when i was um, still in college i beauty and the beast was coming to broadway and i was being flown up to new york to audition for that by an agent here in new york and i was up to be, they had already cast the woman who play, was going to play Belle, but I was up to be in the ensemble and to be her understudy. And I think I flew up here from Cincinnati, Ohio, maybe four or five times. And the final audition, like, you know, there's probably 50 people behind the table. And it was a wonderful experience. I didn't get it. And they told my agent that I wasn't pretty enough. Mm. I don't think they could do that anymore. But when I was in college, I was devastated just to go back to what I was saying before. I didn't have that that belief in who I was and that confidence that I that I've learned to have now. But it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a real zing to the ego. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, some of that is youth, right? But what what are some other kind of life skills that you have implemented that have helped you build that sense of self and confidence? Well, I think my parents helped me growing up because um, I went to private Catholic school. I begged my parents to go to performing arts high school and they were like, absolutely not. And that sort of instilled a default show business hasn't been my whole life, my whole career. I love to do other things. I have I have friends that do other things. I lived outside of New York for 11 years and uh, I actually owned a Pilates studio. I got my Pilates certification. I owned a Pilates studio. I have other, other things in my life that I do not make or break me if it's, if it's not show business. Um, right. That helped define you outside yeah. of this identification of uh, as but an I actress. I find that like meditation uh, is a practice. It's not just something that you just do if you're like down in the dumps. It's like training your brain and your mind and your thoughts is a discipline that I have learned in the recent probably five years of my life. And it's changed my life. Absolutely. Was there anything that led you to the path of meditation or was that just something you decided you wanted to try or was it based on like anxiety or? I think it was based on, I started sort of finding out and questioning about, you know, sort of the metaphysical uh, world of like thoughts becoming things. And, you know, I used to not sleep well. My mind would race all the time. And I was like, I can't meditate. Like, I, you know, I'm an extrovert. I'm, I'm too busy. Like meditate. I'm just going to take a nap. And then I started little by little. And I found that my whole persona changed. I became like more chill. 
I was didn't like I wasn't reactionary to everything in my life. I realized that like I can't change other people. I can change my reaction to situations and other people. And that has like, I'm just so much happier. Oh, it's so freeing when you realize like it's it's not about you, it's about them. And yeah. the only thing you do have control over is again, how you respond to those people around you. And you're right. It's so freeing. Yeah. It's like people are like, when people say, and, I, and I've done it too, but when people say, oh, that's a trigger for me. And it's like, is it though? Like it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be like sushi doesn't have to be a trigger of like that ex you had or you know i'm just making something right up. right like, like you're like doing yourself a disservice you are you're kind of captive to those elements of the past yeah that will then always re-trigger you versus like deciding hmm i'm going to respond differently this time and then that becomes more of the practice yeah and you know it's interesting because like it's contagious because my friends taught me that and I'm teaching my friends. And then you start hanging out with more like-minded people. It's, oh, yes. It's wonderful. It changes everything. Yeah. What, what is the type of meditation you practice? Is there any particular style? I really or... like guided meditations. I find that I, I do really well with a guided meditation because... It for some reason, maybe it's because I'm an actor, I, I'm able to like let go and just, you know, always I have to have some sort of music. I also do meditation, like sleep meditations as I'm going to bed, like, you know, realigning my chakras and those, I mean, I sleep so well. I just mm. put something on and like go to sleep and just like align my body and everything. But I really do like guided meditations. Those are my jam. Well, you seem really together, but I do know that you have experienced some real challenge and difficulty and pain that has led you to this new creative project. Can you talk a little bit about the beginning, the inception of this new one-woman show that you have coming up? Absolutely. I can. And it's interesting that it sort of lends itself to talking about meditation because I really feel like this show that I've written, I was called to do. Years ago, I started, I'm a single mom. I have a son, his name is Beckett, and he is the light of my life. But years ago in New York, I was like, I'm going to write a series of essays of what it's like to be a single mom in New York. So I started writing these like sassy essays. And after about like two months, I like sat down, opened my Google Doc and read them all. And I was like, ew, I do not like this person. And it was me. I was writing about myself. I'm like, this person is a bitch and she has an edge and she's not telling the truth. So then I was like, okay, I, I'm not a writer and this is not my thing. Just stick to acting and singing, you know. Just be a single mom. Like, you don't have to tell anyone about it. But then through my meditation, I firmly believe this is because of my meditation. You know, the quiet, quiet right before you go to sleep or right when you wake up before you move your body. I swear to you, I started hearing this voice that said, finish your book. And I was like, okay, dream, whatever. But it was a consistent voice that would come to me and say, finish your book. 
And at one point, one morning, I heard this voice inside of my head saying, finish your book. And I literally said, what book? And then I asked myself a question. What if you told the truth, Jessica? What if you told the truth about your story and what you and Beckett went through? And I sat down that day and I started writing down what Beckett and I went through with my ex-husband, his father, and that turned into a book, a memoir. And from that memoir, I decided this is a conversation that's worthy of the stage. And it's a conversation that I want to share because my experience I've learned since I've started telling the truth and opening up about my past is not uncommon. Lots of women and men I know deal with mental illness And in my case, my show deals with some big issues. It deals with mental illness. It deals with addiction. It deals with single parenting. And it deals with homelessness. And how I, as a mom, show my son, by by my example, how to overcome that and deal with feeling in that way. And how we get through it and become better because of it. The truth shall set you free, right? And it is, it's such, it's so amazing because when, when people will see this or read it or both, you know, it will, it will give them that, that invitation to, to say, oh, maybe I should be more truthful. You know, we have this idea uh, that we have to present a certain way. And if we don't, then we're going to, people are going to mock us or not like us or when in actuality, there's, there's a, you know, there's just this kinship in humanity. We all have the same thread, different forms of suffering, different forms of triumph, but they run together. You can't just highlight, <laughs> do the highlight reel of, of all the good stuff. And so it is so, it's so powerful to, to witness someone who is being truthful. Can you talk a little bit about what happened with your husband? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just want to piggyback along those lines of what you just said. My story is not um, special. Everyone has their, their struggle. The reason I'm telling my story is because I, I want to tell what happens after, how we get through it. So you can insert whatever your struggle is into the meat of my show, but you get through it and you show your children and your peers that you become better of it. So what happened with my husband is we were married for, you know, almost 14 years. During the beginning part of our relationship, we were together for longer than that, but married 14. He would have like the winter blues and, you know, it was just something we got through. And every year it would get a little worse, last a little longer. And got to the point where I was like, okay, you have to see a doctor. And so he was diagnosed with depression. So we knew he had depression and he would just go through it, not go through it. And it got to the point where he had a very serious, you know, hindsight is 2020, of course, but in the time when I'm in it, I can't see out of it. But now I can look back and see what was happening. He was having a a major manic episode, a major manic episode. And it had been building for a couple months. And he kicked us out of the house. And 
it got really bad. It got to the point where I had to divorce him. He would not get help. And at that time, we were not living in New York. And so I divorced him, but I still had this very young child who loved his dad. And so I, I was navigating, how do I allow my son to have a relationship with his father who is mentally untreated, mentally ill right now? So that was that was tough. And I had a lot of shame and a lot of secrecy because I, I didn't let anyone in because it was embarrassing to be mm-hmm. quite honest with you. I, I felt embarrassed that I made a wrong choice, you know, a wrong choice. I'm putting that in quotes because my marriage fell apart in such a horrible and it was a very public, messy way. Eventually, I got myself back to New York City with my son Beckett. And I was going to start over and get back into show business. And my ex followed us here. And as soon as he got here, he began living his life on the streets, homeless. And he was, for a while, he was quite fine with that life. He, he it didn't, I'm sure it bothered him, but it didn't, he, he wasn't bothered in the way where, where he would ask us for help. But, you know, so I would meet with him and my son Beckett and they would play in the park and I would have to deal with watching my son play with a homeless man and knowing that he didn't want help. He didn't want, didn't want to get well because he literally would not face his life. He was fine with that. And that is, that's like such a terrible thing to witness someone you love. You know, I would say like, it almost felt like he was like abducted by an alien. Like I couldn't even see who he was anymore. And he was dealing with some addiction issues and none of it. I was the crazy person. I had the problem and I felt really alone. And, you know, I wasn't meditating then. I I wasn't, as I wasn't enlightened. So I didn't ask for help. I just made it work. And I, I white knuckled getting through being a single mom with an ex who was homeless on the streets of New York and allowing my son, I was always present to have a relationship. And it was very hard on me because I was so ashamed that this was my life. And he eventually left New York and got well, and he's doing okay now, which is wonderful. I wish him the best. But once I had a little time from that, from him gone, I started opening up to some friends about, about really what was going on in my life. And, you know, they were, why didn't you tell us? We would have helped you. What's going on? You couldn't, you can't. And it was just, I was carrying the shame. I felt that I had to carry this. I, and I thought that's what was being strong. But what I've since learned is that being strong is standing in your truth that's being strong. Yeah. And asking for help. (laughs) Right. A lot of people are afraid to ask for help because they think that's a weakness. But in actual, again, we have to kind of just change the narrative. Asking for help is is super courageous. Yeah. But I'm, I'm imagining those days were just very, very long and very taxing and almost like you didn't have the bandwidth to even think about how to explain it to anyone, how to get help, just it must have been just like forge on and it was I a little felt, survival. Yeah. It was survival mode. And I thought that I had to be strong for my son Beckett and just, you know, 
push any emotion away. And that's a disservice to him because kids are resilient. You know, he was around seven when my ex was homeless, seven, eight, nine. Those were the years he was homeless. And kids are resilient. And this was his normal that his daddy was homeless. So he had to learn how to deal with it, but I wasn't dealing with it. And so I'm sure that was very confusing for him, you know, but... I imagine he might've even taken on some of the, you know, energetically kids will do this, like take on some of that load by not stirring the pot, you know, by just, right. 100%. Yeah. And, you know, now he's a teen and he's a great kid. And when I wrote the show, I was, I've been very like, are you sure this is okay? Are you, are you sure? And there were, there were things in the show that he didn't remember. Because, you know, I'm sure his psyche blocked some, some moments out. And so for him, this has been healing in a way too, because he's begun unpacking. That isn't, that wasn't normal, what happened, but that was our life at that time. And, you know, I perpetuated the stigma of mental illness for many years by not being truthful about what was going on in my life. I perpetuated that shame where I thought I wasn't, but I see now that I was. And that's why I wrote this show because we have to stop thinking that mental illness is something to be ashamed of because it's not. It's not. It's just an illness and it Mm -hmm. can be treated, you know? Yes, it can. And I just, this is such a worthy conversation because we, of course, we know you know, there's probably many more that are not even reported how prevalent depression is, anxiety, um, bipolar, you know, disorders. My dad, his sister, so my aunt committed suicide. This was, I was probably, I think around 10 or 11. And what I so appreciated is my dad, despite the fact that, you know, we were in the South where you don't really talk about bad things, right? Everything's like, well, it's all good. You know, it's just kind of sugarcoated. But he told us right from the beginning what happened instead of, you know, saying, oh, she just was sick and died. You know, he told us and he said, that's amazing. This, I know I so, and I like, we were 11 and we could handle that. And it was actually so valuable because he, there was no stigma. He said, she suffered a long time, just like somebody has diabetes or heart disease. This was a disease in her brain. And she tried and she did, you know, we all tried to help her and it was too much. Life was too much. And it's hard to understand that. But when you have a disease like that, sometimes if it's not something that can be helped or the person doesn't want to be helped, it can lead to this. And so it was it was beautiful because he never criticized her or demonized her because of course that it can be a very common thing. Yeah. For family members of uh, suicide. But it, he humanized it, but he also spoke about it. And I think, you know, that's just so like rare you said, and so I know. It was, yeah. I mean, he was such an amazing person that way. But I think that having a show about it is, you know, just, it's just going to be so healing for, 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 for so many. I hope so, because I feel like by sharing my story in a theatrical way, not in like a um, TED talk or a, like a group therapy situation, like in a theatrical way, you know, I think that's what 
theater is for, where people can have these cathartic experiences that are more elevated, and then they can apply it to their their own stories. And absolutely, because it's relatable. They'll look at you and be like, wow, this happened to her. Yeah. You know, so the stuff that's happening to me, I can I can help somebody with, you know, or I can seek help. I still remember one of the first I was in a workshop, a new Broadway musical, and this was years ago. This was when my ex was literally homeless. And I we were on a lunch break and I had a weak moment, which I call a weak moment. It was a truthful moment. Um, I was sitting with two people I had just met and we're at lunch and I must've been looking distressed because the one girl said, what's wrong? And I said, oh, well, I have to go meet my ex-husband with my son after rehearsal and he's actually homeless. And it was one of the first times I said that out loud. And she looked at me and she said, I'm so sorry to hear that. My dad was homeless when I was in high school. And I was like, Uh. as like a shock through my body. I thought I was alone. And that was the first time I was like, oh my God, other people experience this. And I will never forget that moment. That was the moment where I started opening up to people. And every single time I did, they would have a relatable story. Mm. Oh, my sister has been in the hospital because she's had manic episodes. Oh, my father, this, oh, you know. And it's just, that's why this conversation is important for, quote, people who aren't mentally ill because we deal with, we deal with it too. Absolutely. It's, it impacts everyone at some level, whether it's personal or relatable because of a person they know. So how did you turn this into a one-woman show? Because I love one people shows, of course. Thank you. Yes. I mean, you know, my husband and I love Fleabag. Oh my gosh. You know, talk about like having it all on the table. You know, it's brilliant and challenging. It's so- very challenging. I, I, it started because I wrote a memoir and, you know, I am not a celebrity. So I was trying to get a book deal and I would have like agents, literary agents and publishers basically say, I don't really know what to do with you because you don't have the platform to get this memoir to where... And so I was like, shoot, okay, what am I going to do? Well, I know how to sing. So I'm going to do a cabaret show at 54 Below, which is a very popular dinner club here in New York. And in between the songs, I'm going to like tell some little snippets about my book and I'm going to invite literary agents. So I start, I'm like, okay, I have 278 pages to work with. What am I going to do? And so I, I dove in and, I, and I, it hit me. I'm like, this, I could do a cabaret. I, that's what I do. But this is different. This is, this is worthy of just the material. And um, I originally wrote it as a two-person play. And then I had like my tribe, my inner circle read the script. And every single one of them said to me, Jessica, this is a cute device, but it's a crutch. You can do this. Write it as a one-woman show. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I can. And they're like, do it. So I did it. And I love it. I love playing my son. I love playing my ex. I love playing the little angels in my life that kind of lead me along to where I am today. You know, 
And it's mm. great taking on all of those roles because it just worked. I don't know. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait to see this. So how, how can we see this? Where can we see this? I know it's like COVID times. So. I know it's COVID times, but um, I was lucky enough to be chosen to be in a festival, which is a virtual festival. It's through the Irondale Theater, which is an amazing theater in Brooklyn. Every year they do a festival and it's called On Women. And it's all about women's voices and their stories. So I submitted my show and I was chosen as one of two main stage productions. And my show will be sort of like their finale. Last week, I was at the theater all week. They built me a sound stage and we filmed my, professionally filmed my show. Mm. So it's being, it's in the can, as they say. (laughs) And they're editing it together. And at the end of March, I think it's March 25, 26, 27, 28. It's a Thursday through a Sunday. Every night at 7.30, they will be showing Walking with Bubbles. And you can go to their website, irondale.org, and buy a ticket. Gonna do it. I am so excited. I'm so excited, especially you know, having this and this podcast is going to be running before it. So everyone, ha- yeah, everyone has this um, glimpse and real it's like a it's it's such a little appetizer and i want more i really want to see it now so thank you so much for taking the time to to share your story and to share your life to share your art we can see it all in this so this will be on the show notes where else can uh, people find out information about you jessica well i'm on instagram at at jess hendy and twitter same and i'm on facebook and then I have a website and I will be having a Walking With Bubbles website coming sometime this month, but it's it's not ready yet. Is there any way you can tell us about the title without... The, I, unless it's a, like a integral to this, but yeah. No, I can tell you because you find out on page two. Okay. Um, Bubbles is my pet name for Beckett and it has been ever since he was a baby. So uh-huh. Walking With Bubbles is Beckett, my son. I love that. Oh, this is beautiful. What a wonderful mom you are. What a treat. Oh my God. Thank you so much again, Jessica. So everyone check that out and go buy those tickets. I can't wait to see this show. Yay. Yay. Yeah, thank you. I always love women supporting women. So let's all go out. Men support women too, but let's really support each other and keep speaking the truth. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And for all of you listening, as always, I am pulling for you. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.